Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Our son Owen had spinal surgery during his school's transition year. A history and classics fanatic, he missed the school trip to the Colosseum in Rome. So in the summer of 2019, we pack him, his wheelchair and his assistant's dog Duke into the family car. A brand new, specially adapted passenger van. Packed to the roof with four teenagers, a large golden retriever, suitcases, laptops, iPads, smartphones and two large 10 kilo bags of dog food, we head to Dublin Port on our odyssey. Two ferries and several motorways, autoroutes and autostrada later, we arrive in Rome on Tuesday the 23rd of July. Teeming with tourists, it bakes in 38 degrees of heat. In insane traffic, we navigate our way towards the Colosseum. As luck would have it, we find a disabled parking bay close by. In brilliant sunshine, we queue at the Palatine Hill for entry to the Forum. Some Italian policewomen approach us. Gesturing at Owen's wheelchair and Duke the dog, they lead us to the top of the queue and usher us through the turnstiles. Owen gets VIP treatment. He insists we see everything. I manhandle him and his chair into and around temples. Vesta, Romulus, Augustus, Julius, across cobbled streets and into the arena of the Colosseum itself. Eventually, exhausted, we head back to the car. But it's not there. I find a policeman. Our car seems to have been towed, I tell him. He places his arm around my shoulders. No, senor, it is not towed, it is stolen. It happens every day in Roma. The teens pop out their earpods. What did he say? The car has been stolen, with everything in it. Suitcases, laptops, iPads, 10 kilo bags of dog food and our passports were shocked into complete silence. 2,500 kilometres from home, all I can hear is my own heartbeat and the relentless whirring of crickets in the surrounding trees. The silence is finally broken when Owen makes two fists and curses loudly. Duke pants and wags his tail at the elegantly dressed policeman. Dario, the most philosophical police officer in Rome, studies our faces and says, OK, OK, tranquilo. You are all safe, all together. He walks us to the police station, Castura di Roma, the grandly titled Commissario de PS Sezionale Esquilino on Via Petrarca. The police stare at our forlorn family through the bulletproof glass in reception. A buzzer sounds, a door clicks, and they welcome us into the air-conditioned office area. La Familia Irlandesa. A very tall policewoman, the boss, pushes her way towards us. In perfect English, she directs us into her office. The cops bring bottles of coke for the teens. One detective, with mirror sunglasses, has a handgun shoved down the waistband at the front of his trousers. Rossa, the youngest, whispers to me, if that gun fires, it'll blow his pants off. I think this is one of my lesser worries. We fill in a report. The boss tells me to listen carefully. Your car 
is gone forever. It will not be recovered. You must plan now to get home to Ireland. I will call the Irish Embassy and then we will take you to Termini train station to hire another car. A few phone calls later, we've informed the insurance company of our predicament and have an appointment at the Villa Spada, the Irish Embassy, for the next day. We book a flight home, check into our accommodation and have a dejected dinner that evening in Trastevere. Owen looks at my long face from his wheelchair. Grinning, he launches into the chorus of Joe Dolce's Shut Up Your Face. What's the matter, you? Why you look so sad? It's a not so bad. It's a nicer place. Ah, shut up your face. We all burst into laughter. The words of Dario, the cop philosopher, return to me once more. You are all safe, all together. The following day, we drive across town to the Irish Embassy on Via Giacomo Medici, close to the Vatican. The ambassador greets us with coffee and dolce. He tells us the history of the Villa Spada. Unfortunately, he can do nothing for Duke the Dog, who must get his own passport from the Italian authorities. Without an official pet passport, Duke will go into enforced quarantine. Owen will lose his working dog, his partner, his world, our world, will fall apart. A frantic Google search reveals that we must travel out of Rome to get the necessary travel documents. The clock is ticking. We race up the autostrada to Siena, to the Department of Agriculture veterinary section. Our clothes are getting dirtier. I have not shaved since the theft of, well, everything. When we get there, they're already pulling down the shutters for the day. I lift Owen out of the rental and the entire family, wheelchair and golden retriever, make it through the door of the building. Just. Initially, the Italian vets ask us to leave. They've no jurisdiction over an Irish dog. No, wait, I say. I start to tell them, with the help of Google Translate, of the theft of our family car in Roma. Nostra macchina rubata. The vets fall silent. They confer in hushed staccato whispers, staring all the while at the dishevelled Irish family. Understanding suddenly dawns on them. Mamma mia. They hug Owen to Soro mio. They hug each of us in turn. Duke gets a hug too. Duke is photographed. His chip is scanned. His Italian passport is produced. The fee is waived. They ask me his name. Duke, I say. Il Duce, they laugh as they enter his name into his new documents. Two days later, we fly home, exhausted, filthy, but despite everything, elated. The Aer Lingus staff pat Duke on the head and assist Owen off the plane at Terminal 2. Cool, wet Dublin. As we leave the terminal, we face one last trial. Customs officers stop us and demand to see Duke's papers. Why are you bringing an Italian dog into Ireland? Well now, I start to tell them the story. They wave us through. In the taxi home, Owen and the teens say, that was so cool. And even, can we do that again? We're all safe. We are all together. Il Duce wags his tail. Hello, I'm Giuseppe. I got something special for you. Ready? Uno, two, three, quattro. When I was a boy, just a 
shoot the pool Joseph begun to flunk a school Boy, it make me sick All the thing I gotta do I can't get the no kicks I always got to follow rules Boy, it make me sick Just to make the lousy bucks Got to feel like a fool In my grandparents' house Many years ago I was shown an autograph book that belonged to my aunt when she was a girl. Far from a tool to record fleeting encounters with the famous and celebrated, this ancient specimen was intended for friends and family to enshrine their good wishes to the book's owner. And so, this autograph book was filled with messages from school pals, with heartfelt sentiments as they parted ways, or from favourite teachers passing on some final words of wisdom as my aunt set out on adult life. But there was one early entry that stood out from the rest because it was not word-based at all. Instead, it was a miniature watercolour with the outline drawn in blue biro and delicate hues of pale blue and green and yellow added to create a rural scene of a small low cottage on a hillside with the obligatory thatched roof and wisps of cloud in the otherwise clear, sky-blue sky. Possibly not the most original theme, but besides being very pretty, it is noteworthy for being drawn by a bona fide famous person, an illustrious visitor to the house. Oshin Kelly, the renowned sculptor whose work includes such defining Dublin city landmarks as the much-loved Children of Lear, and an imposing Jim Larkin with his massive hands and uplifted arms spread wide, encompassing workers everywhere. Family stories may not be the most copper-fastened of accounts, but although they may be unreliable in nature, they are often true in essence. This one goes that in around 1946, Mr Kelly, as he was always known in the family, was interested in working in stone, and so visited the monumental works in Mount Jerome Cemetery to find out where he could buy a bolster, which, to the uninitiated, is a large chisel used by bricklayers. He was directed to my grandfather, John O'Donoghue, known to all as Jack, the current incumbent in a long line of stonecutters, and the third generation to have carved and hewed a lifetime of gravestones in Mount Jerome. Mr Kelly was only a few years younger than my granddad, who was the most meticulous of craftsmen, and over discussions of granites and marbles, angles and grain, and the various tools required, the two found that they got on well. My grandparents lived in Harold's Cross, on the other side of the park from the cemetery, so not far then for Mr Kelly and my granddad to take a short stroll and be welcomed for a cup of something hot by my grandmother Peck, and sundry small children. And thereafter, Mr Kelly got into the habit of calling in to consult with my grandad about such matters as where to obtain tools or the intricacies of carving stone. The story goes that a penal cross that Mr Kelly originally carved in bog oak was reworked in limestone in my grandparents' garden. And, on another occasion... He brought a figure he had carved of Our Lady of Lourdes around to check that it was technically correct from the Catholic perspective, not being of that persuasion himself. This figure was left sitting on the table and my grandmother walked in from doing the messages, took one look and said, That's awful, who did that? From behind a high-backed chair, Mr Kelly said, I did. 
my grandmother was mortified. She had not intended to insult the great man and was rightly caught out. The irregular but not infrequent visits made Mr Kelly a familiar bohemian figure in the house with his ex-naval duffel coat and his impressively long scarf. On one occasion, he obliged the eldest daughter, Anne, by drawing the distinctive autograph book entry. He also whiled away one early visit by doing a pencil sketch of my grandfather with his steadfast gaze, captured in his late thirties. Mr Kelly is remembered within the family as being endlessly charming and an excellent conversationalist in a household that prized chat. Indeed, the house was known for being one where a visitor might, after an evening of conversation, stand up to leave at 11 o'clock at night and have made it no further than the hall by one o'clock in the morning. Such was the wealth of topics to discuss. For Mr Kelly, though, there was no such preamble to eventual departure. My father, as a small and then not so small child, remembers that when Mr Kelly decided to go, he stood abruptly, announced he was leaving, wrapped his long scarf three times around his neck and was gone, with the whole process completed in less than a minute. And so it must have been that he left one night in this manner and never got around to returning. No falling out, no final farewell. But that was the casual and easy nature of the relationship, with only warm memories and a couple of very pleasing sketches left behind. There were too many people living in my flat, and Nicky was still at home with her mum. So usually when we went out, we did just that. We walked around the streets of Clerkenwell talking and window shopping, or sat at bus stops eating chips and sheltering from the rain. Towards the end of the week, we'd sometimes dig through our pockets and treat ourselves to a drink or a trip to the pictures. That evening we'd been to one of the Odeon cinemas that were dotted across London's West End, and after the film I'd walk Nicky to the station. She waved as the escalator carried her away and I quickly climbed back up to street level to catch a bus home. On the way to Trafalgar Square I stopped and sitting on the steps of a large office building smoked a cigarette. When it was finished I stubbed it out against the heel of my shoe and got back to my feet but I was no sooner upright when two men crossed the road and hurried toward me. One of the men was wearing the uniform of the Metropolitan Police. Excuse me sir. His casually dressed colleague called out, Could we have a word? I stopped and looked at them. Of course. What have you been up to tonight? The man went on. I've been smoking a cigarette, I said, and I pointed back towards the steps. Over there. Been trying car door handles, have we? The uniformed policeman asked. No, I said, and thinking to establish a lack of motive, added, I can't drive. Don't need to drive to steal things from the glove compartment, do you? The plainclothes policeman interrupted me. I had to admit that he was right. If you've not been trying car door handles, his colleague continued, what have you been up to? I've been to the pictures, I replied. Whereabouts? The Odeon Haymarket. And what's showing there at the moment? 
the tin drum. There was a brief pause. They've painted themselves into a corner, I said to myself. They don't know anything about German art house cinema, and they will now make their excuses and leave. I could not have been more wrong. Any good? Yes, I said, it's, it's, it's very good. And have you read the book? I'm sorry? The film is based on a book by Gunter Grass. Have you read it? I shook my head. For several reasons. No? Oh, you should, uniform policeman told me. It's brilliant. What's your name, they asked, and I gave it to them along with my address, glad that the conversation was now taking a more traditional path. You working at the moment? I work at the Tate Gallery, I told them truthfully. Got the David Hockney retrospective on at the moment, haven't you? Oh, for God's sake, I said to myself. This is like being interrogated by Melvin Bragg. Yes, I said. My wife and I went over to Paris to see the exhibition when it was there, the plainclothes policeman told me. But I understand, he went on, that some new material's been added now that it's in London. Yes, I said, I... I heard that too. Have to stop by some time and check it out, he said with a smile. If you're there, maybe we'll come and say hello. A few minutes later, the conversation having wound down, they hurried away to fight crime in some other part of the city, and I jumped on a bus and went home. A couple of weeks later, Nicky dumped me, and I went to the seaside to cheer myself up. When I got to work the following morning, the head of security called me to his office. I didn't have any idea why he would want to see me, and things got no clearer when he said, we had a policeman in here yesterday asking for you. Not knowing why such a thing would happen, I said only, oh? For the first time since I'd been working with him, the head of security gave me what might pass for a smile. He asked me to give you this. He pushed a paper bag across his desk. Go on, then. I opened the bag and took out a small leather-bound book. On the cover I read, Die Blechtrommel. It was a copy of Gunter Grass's novel, The Tin Drum, in German. The sugarloaf appears as I drive home over the bridge, a week shopping in the boot. I take off my mask and breathe deep. Later I walk to the park, crane my neck to look up at the scotch pine, a tracery of needles against blue sky. In each puddle the sun gleams. A while back, flurries of snow settle briefly on clumps of daffodils, melting as if on a tongue. Now the spindly cherry trees by the dog park are in bloom. I see images from the Japanese classic, Ogura's 100 poems by 100 poets everywhere. I walk on as another view of the sugarloaf is revealed above the trees, our very own Fuji. Back then, before, I'd go fortnightly to meet James, the Japanese translator with whom I wrote the book. We'd puzzle out images of the wind scattering dew on the fields like pearls, of fishing traps at dawn on the Uji River, of kimono sleeves used as a pillow for a lover's head, of river oaks that stirred during summer purification rites. We googled the screech of the sika deer, 
We even spent time investigating ancient methods of salt production, its extraction from seaweed using fire and how this became a metaphor for the narrator burning with desire for her lover. We sank into the syllabics of these gems, their sounds, their physicality, the exactness of their language, and sketched out versions in English that might retain some of the tang, the emotional drama of the original. I learnt along the way that the Japanese word for a spring haze on the mountain is different to that for an autumn haze on the mountain. Translation could be described as an act of patience and love, and in each of the 100 poems is a word on which it pivots, creating two and sometimes three different readings of the poem. These pivot words are almost impossible to translate directly into English, with one shiny exception, matsu, which means both to pine and pine tree. And so it turns out that the playful waves of Takashai Beach are also a covert invitation to adultery. That in the layered petals of Nara's cherry blossoms, there is an allusion to the intricate architecture of the abandoned palace. That the character for the Japanese word furi can mean to rain down and to age. Oh yes, and each of these miniature worlds, with all of their imagery, their double or triple readings, nuances, emotions and landscapes, are contained in 31 syllables. They are known as tankas or wakas, literally short poems, and predate their cousin, the even briefer haiku, by several hundred years. The French philosopher Bachelard has written about the heat of an image, about how like a seed a miniature is, and how every universe is concentrated in its own nucleus. A dynamised centre, if you will. So what universe do these dual poems concentrate? The Japanese poetry circles of the time were elite, aristocratic. And so our poets include a 7th century emperor, an 8th century soldier calligrapher, and a 9th century lady-in-waiting, as well as Buddhist masters, nuns, high commissioners, empresses and more, all who ruled, loved and wrote between the 7th and 12th century. Most of them lived within a radius of 50 kilometres, stretching between Kyoto and the coast. And yet the more the year went on, the more these poems resounded, written as they often were from a place of isolation or longing. Take poem 99, by the 12th century Emperor Gotoba. I am consumed by my own thoughts, vexed with those I love and those I loathe. This world has lost its zest. A few months ago, trusting in vaccines, publication schedules and with hope for the future, we, with our publisher, chose poem 79 as the title poem. From a gap in the clouds, Stretched thin by autumn wind, the moon radiates its brilliance. Now it is spring, nearly summer. I am home, the shopping packed away, my walk done. Our book, A Gap in the Clouds, sits on the table. Its cover, a striking green Hokusai print. I turn off the news and open it on a poem, which captures all of the ambiguity of today written over 1,000 years ago by a Japanese courtier. 
In the long light of spring my own heart settles. I marvel at how petals fall. Such unrest. On the night of the 7th of May, 1916, a two-year-old boy was brought by his mother together with his brothers and sister to Kilmainham Jail. The boy's name was Joseph Mallon. The reason for the visit was that his father, Michael Mallon, was to be executed at dawn the next morning for the part he played in the 1916 Rising. Michael Mallon was second in command of the Irish Citizen Army under its leader James Connolly and was commandant of the Stevens Green Command in the College of Surgeons during the Rising. On arriving at the prison, Joseph and his elder sister Una were seated on the stairs leading to the cells. Later Una would tell him that while they were waiting to be brought up to see their father, one of the soldiers came to Joseph and said that he was sorry for him. After his family left the prison, Michael Mallon wrote a letter to them. In the letter, he asked his sons, James and John, to be good, strong men and look after their mother and to always remember Ireland. He then asked Joseph to be a priest if he can. The letter can be seen in Kilmainham Jail Museum and is remarkable not just for its poignant content, but also for its steadiness of hand from someone who was facing death the next morning. Years later, Joseph would relate the hardship and suffering that families of those executed would endure from some Dublin citizens who blamed them for the trouble they had brought on the city. He also had personal recollections of his family being targeted by the military with regular raids carried out during the night. One particular memory was of Armistice Day 1918 when a group of drunken soldiers broke into the house. His mother picked him up and fled to the safety of a neighbour's house and he remembered being looked after by Pierce's mother, Countess Markovich and other families of those executed when his own mother was ill. During the Civil War, his family took the anti-partition side. This would cause more anguish for his mother, who was in poor health. His brother Seamus was discovered with a firearm by the Free State Army. This carried a mandatory death sentence, but in the event was commuted to a term in prison. By the time Joseph Mallon was 10, he had witnessed World War I, the Easter Rising and his father's execution, the War of Independence and the Civil War. He went on to dedicate his life to peace, equality and education. He was ordained a Jesuit priest in 1948. He was posted to Canton province in China where he witnessed terrible scenes of famine and death. In 1949, the communist revolution forced him to retreat to Hong Kong. He would later relate that nothing could have prepared him for the horror he would encounter with millions of people living and dying on the streets. He founded a school, Wa Yan College, and would spend over six decades there educating and empowering the young people of Hong Kong. 
In 2009, Father Mallon made a rare visit to Ireland. As he was the sole survivor of any of the children of those executed and over 90 years old at the time, I realised that this could well be his last visit home. With this in mind, I contacted him with a view to recording some of his memories of his amazing life. We filmed with him in the cell in Kilmainham where his father spent his last hours and also at his father's grave in Arbor Hill. At the time, I was just recording him for posterity with a view to placing it in an archive at a later date. In 2015, Neve Heary of Swan Song Films contacted me to say that the Irish Film Board were commissioning a series of short films to commemorate the Easter Rising, which allowed us to travel to Hong Kong and do further filming with Father Mallon in the school he founded almost seven decades previous. Our film took the viewer from the present day back to almost a century to the eyes of an exceptional man. It's hard to believe at this time that he was in his 103rd year. His memories were so sharp and crystal clear. He recalled Mao Zedong, the Communist Revolution, the Cultural Revolution, the Tiananmen Square demonstrations and the handing over of Hong Kong. He likened Tiananmen Square to his childhood memories of being brought by his elder brother to Arthur Griffith's funeral and seeing Michael Collins marching down a war-torn O'Connell Street. In Kilmainham Jail, we had filmed Father Joe reading his father's letter. We concluded our film with him reading his father's final farewell to his wife Agnes. Goodbye, my wife and darling. These last few hours must be spent with God alone. Your loving husband, Michael Mallon, Commandant Stevens Green Command. His son, Joseph Mallon, died in Hong Kong aged 104 on Easter Sunday, April 1st, 2018, 102 years after his father made the supreme sacrifice so that Ireland might know freedom. The Laughing Chimney Sweep, Connemara, 1847. Pure as the driven snow, the boy of eight or so is running west, fast, away from cruel employers in the city. Running barefoot, almost naked, sixty miles into Connemara, smudges of soot on his pale white skin, a piece of sacking tied around his waist, a small hoe under his arm. Do you not feel the cold? asks the English gentleman from his carriage, intrigued by this Irish curiosity. And where do you keep your money? In my fist. And what do you do when your two hands are full? The boy is on his way to sweep the chimneys in the police barracks, has just swept for the local priest, says, I will fall upon a plan when my hands are full of money, throws his head back and laughs, 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 and runs again. And we, 
will never know. Did he fall among the frosted rock and heather? Or pay his fare to go? On this morning's programme, we heard How Duke the Dog Became an Italian Citizen by Tom Clonan. A Friendship Set in Stone was by Cloda O'Donoghue. The Art Police by Chris McCallum. 100 Japanese Poems by Nell Regan. A Father's Letter by J.M. Dolan. And The Laughing Chimney Sweep, a poem by Vincent Woods. The music was Shut Up Your Face by Joe Dolce. This Way, Journey to Inishfree and Humble Cottage by Victor Young, played by the Dublin Screen Orchestra. Watching the Detectives by Elvis Costello. A Japanese lullaby by Akai Tai, The Red Birds. And From Four Little Piano Pieces by Liszt, Andantino, played by Paul Lewis. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. The short film mentioned by J.M. Dolan, A Father's Letter, can be watched on the IFI player. And Nell Regan's new book with James Hadley, mentioned in her script, is A Gap in the Clouds. And that's published by Daedalus Press. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.